Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT podcast. Your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today on the AAMFT podcast, we explore narrative therapy a postmodern model based on the notion that we make meaning of our lives through the stories we live out as we interact with each other. Our clients often come to therapy when they have a sense of being stuck in these stories in which they don't measure up on some cultural scale of performance or in stories that restrict the possibilities they can perceive for a better life. Narrative therapists help people experience some alternative story that already exists in their lives that may have been overshadowed or forgotten by the client. These are stories with themes and plots that are in line with more empowering, more satisfying, more hope-filled futures. Those stories are there if we look hard enough for them. And when found and brought to life, they can let people experience and take credit for the knowledge, skills, and abilities they have inherent to themselves. And it is a powerful experience when you can help clients restore their lives. And today we are going to talk about that on the podcast with two leaders in the narrative therapy movement. And you'll hear them how they moved from a strategic Milan approach indelibly influenced by their interactions with the founder of narrative therapy, the late, great Michael White. I'm talking about Jill Friedman and Gene Combs. Jill Friedman and Gene Combs are the co-directors of the Evanston Family Therapy Center, as well as the founding members of the Chicago Center for Family Health, an independent affiliate of the University of Chicago. Internationally recognized for their advances in narrative theory and training, they received the 2009 Award for Innovative Contribution to Family Therapy from the American Family Therapy Academy. They have co-authored more than 30 journal articles and book chapters and three books symbol story and ceremony using metaphor and individual and family therapy narrative therapy the social construction of preferred realities and narrative therapy with couples jill practices therapy in the chicago area and consults to organization and schools she's also on the international faculty of the famed dulwich center and teaches in the low residency master's program in narrative therapy and community work offered by the Dulwich Center and the University of Melbourne. Gene recently retired from his position as clinical associate professor at the University of Chicago, serves as a board member for the American Family Therapy Academy. Jill and Gene both teach internationally, as you'll hear them mention in our interview, and their workshops are valued by both new and experienced clinicians alike for their warm and down-to-earth style, which they expand the therapeutic vision and skills of all that they come in contact with. And you'll get a sense for their partnership and their accessibility in the interview, which I had a lot of fun conducting and learned quite a few things as well. 
Imagine a world where in-office therapy went beyond the session and included a journey where clients' assessments, automated data-driven content, and more could be used as tools to help guide clients. Our friends at Noble are changing the way therapists do therapy. With Noble, earn passive income while offering clients a more engaging experience. Clients pay a monthly fee for Noble and gain access to between-session support through automated therapist-created roadmaps, progress assessments, and in-app messaging. Noble handles the billing for you, so you don't have to worry. Join for free at www.noble.health. Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast. So happy to continue our Pioneer series. And I have two pioneers joining us. Jill Freeman, Gene Combs of Narrative Therapy. And traditionally, in the spirit of narrative, Jill and Gene like to start off the interview in a certain way. So I'm going to let them do that. Take it away. So we just like to acknowledge the context and narrative a lot. Here in Chicago, Part of our context is that we're on the traditional homelands of the Council of Three Fires, the Odawa, the Ojibwe, and the Potawatomi Nations, and that many other tribes like the Miami, Ho-Chunk, Sauk, and Fox have called this area home. We're located at the intersection of several great waterways. The land naturally became a site of travel and healing for many tribes, and American Indians continue to call this area home. Now Chicago's home to the third largest urban American Indian community that still practices their heritage, the traditions and care for the land and the waterways. And starting, we further want to acknowledge that much of our personal and civic wealth is extracted from the stolen labor of enslaved persons of African origins. And we just want to keep that in mind anytime we're interacting with other people. Thanks. And we also want to thank you, Eli, for inviting us, and um, we're delighted to be on this AAMFT podcast. And we're delighted to have you. You know, what I want to know is, how did you all first discover, even before this great narrative tradition, how did you first discover systemic thinking and family therapy, number one? And then number two, I want the origin story of Jean and Jill, how you all met. I think your story of... uh, how you discovered systemic ideas and family therapy, I think, predates mine. So maybe you should start. Yeah. My story goes back to when I was in medical school, started in medical school in 1968. And the medical school I went to at the University of Kentucky was established as a fairly young medical school to be a family-centered medical care was sort of what they were going to focus on in, in their whole curriculum. So I got a lot of family and community health teaching when I went to medical school, which I think was unusual for the time. And then in my residency program, kind of early hippie back to the land days, and I was kind of a wannabe back to the land hippie at the time, and was reading Gregory Bateson. And Bateson's all about systems and how everything connects to everything else and how context is is all. And you can't pull out little pieces of the context and just look at them without getting into big trouble. So then as I began to study psychotherapy, I had a couple of social workers that were very into family therapy. So it's been there ever since I've been learning how to be a professional 
of any kind. Over to you, Jill. So I really began more as an individual therapist. I mean, I did see some families, but my thinking was pretty individual. We met in the context of Ericksonian workshop. We were both really involved in learning that's Ericksonian. Milton Erickson, yeah, that's yeah, Milton, Milton Erickson, not Eric Erickson. Uh, we, we know all about Milton Erickson on the show, uh, certainly giving rise to our earliest form of strategic family therapy and working with Jay Haley. But what you all do is a long way away from that. So it's interesting how you've gotten to this very postmodern approach from, from where you started. But what happened was we presented at an Ericksonian conference. And they were publishing the proceeds of that conference. And they asked everyone who had presented and whose paper was going to be published to edit of somebody else's. And one of the people who Jean was reading their paper for editing and for commenting on had written about the Milan team and talked about the Milan team as having sort of hypnotic suggestions in their questions. So Jean got really interested in the Milan team and we went to Milan. They had a two-week English language training every summer and we went to two of those and that's where I really got interested in systems. Um, They didn't teach very directly but I felt like I learned so much about how each question influenced everybody and how the system changed as they were working. So that for me was was a beginning. And we actually ended up writing a paper called Milton Erickson, Early Postmodernist. You were turned on by circular questioning. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I want to go back up and pick up the story of Jean and Jill a little bit, if that's okay. We first met at a very advanced Ericksonian hypnotherapy workshop. I like to say we've been entranced with each other ever since. Within the first years we were together, we we were thinking of ourselves as Ericksonian and as hypnotherapists. But then as Jill was beginning to pick up that story about going and studying with the Milan team, hanging out with Luigi and Gianfranco, Luigi Boscolo and Gianfranco Cicchin, in Italy for two long summers, started a love affair with Italy for me and Jill. So we've been going back to Italy for 30 years now. And that's that's, that's just a thing that runs through our relationship. And we, we do an advanced training every year or have until COVID got in the way in the fall of every year where we go back to Italy and do sort of our, our super advanced one week training in narrative there. And that's always been a central touchstone for our relationship. Okay, so now our listeners to the show understand classic traditions and and in some ways being entranced by the Milan team. uh, You like the circular question, but when we think of a postmodern model like narrative that enfranchises the client and the client is expert, and then we think of a very traditional model like strategic Milan where it is not transparent. In fact, it is very paradoxical. You don't meet the team behind the mirror. You don't, in fact, if you understand what's going on in the black box, that's considered a constraint to change, which is very different than the narrative framework. So how did you get from a very traditional patriarchal model of strategic, and in this case, Milan, to something very postmodern 
and inclusive as narrative. It's a sort of um, a funny story, I think, because it wasn't purposeful. After we studied with the Milan team, we met other people in the Chicago area who were interested in working with families. And Jennifer Andrews and Dave Clark sponsored very small workshops where we had live supervision with different people like Jay Haley and Chloe Madanas and Mnuchin, sort of almost accidentally knowing very, very little about him, Jennifer invited Michael White to come to one of these small gatherings. I think this was 1986. It might have been 1987. There was an AMFT uh, conference in Chicago, and Jennifer was doing some sort of internship at IJR, the Family Systems Program at the Institute of Juvenile Research, which I don't think that program exists there anymore. But It she doesn't, was- but it's a place of a great tradition in family therapy, launching the careers of people like Dick Schwartz, Celia Valikov, Howie Little. We've had them all on the show. So Chicago is just a great bastion for psychotherapy in general and specifically systemic thinking and family therapy. Right. So Jennifer Andrews was there at the time and one of the people there knew that she hosted these small events. They said to her, Michael White, is a, some, coming from Australia. He's somebody who people are interested in. Maybe you'd like to have him. They were having him for a day, and she invited them for two following days. And so I went to all three of those days. And that was the first time, and this was before narrative therapy had a name, but Michael was just beginning to get a little bit of attention sort of in the international family therapy scene. Jennifer knew almost nothing about him. She, he was coming, and somebody at IJR suggested it, and so she hosted him. And I really understood nothing that he said. I'm pretty sure I took notes, which I later looked at. I just wrote down the words that he said. I'm pretty sure it went right over my head. But I Can, I, can I pick up the story here, Jill? Sure. I was not able to go to that. I, we were living in St. Louis at the time. And I had the day job that was supporting us financially. We were becoming very frustrated with trying to do Milan. It wasn't working for us. We were beginning to think Milan approach doesn't work in this country somehow, or we don't know how to do it or something. When Jill came back from Chicago, she had this glow on her face. And she was telling me about, she said, I don't know. I don't understand what he's saying when he's talking. But the way he is with people in the room, that's what we've been looking for. I saw the family really respond to him. I saw a kind of transparency I hadn't seen before. I was just blown away. One of the interviews that he did, so nobody had heard of him at this time. And so almost nobody was coming to this workshop. And so Jennifer invited Luigi Bosclo and Gianfranco Cicchin to come because there were only like six people, and they were going to also be in Chicago because of AMFT, and they came. And so we're sitting behind the mirror, and Michael's working, and this was before the days of reflecting team. He came behind the mirror at a certain point, and as he was just walking over the threshold, Luigi and Gianfranco started having this debate. And one of them said, it was the mother. No, I think it's the triangle. No. And they were like going back and forth. And Michael said, stop. And there was this absolute silence. Michael said, I don't want to hear like what you think was going on. I want to hear 
what you've noticed that's already happening that might be helpful in the problem that this family's talking about. And so he had a totally different idea. He was honoring the knowledge of the people in the room. He didn't think that we had some special knowledge. And bit by bit, we began to talk about what we had noticed the family doing. And as Michael went back in the room, Gianfranco said, if he doesn't like the opera, why is he a family therapist? But I think there was great respect between the three of them, even though it was a moment of really different kinds of ideas. I didn't understand the ideas that Michael was basing his work on, but I loved the way it looked in the room. I loved the kinds of relationships he was forging with people. And so we began following, you know, anytime he was in North America, we tried to go to his workshops. And we, we sort of hit it off with him and his partner, Cheryl, I ended up being invited to come and study and spend some time behind the mirror with Michael back in the days when it wasn't something everybody in the world was wanting to do. So we, we spent a week watching Michael work there. And then that started that relationship that went on for years where we had him at least once a year here in Chicago. And we started reading a lot of postmodern literature because that's what he said we should read. And, and we, during that same trip, we also spent time with um, David Epstein. And he was also somebody that we sponsored a number of times here in Chicago. How do you think the field should remember Michael? He passed away way too soon. He was such a charismatic figure. As, as you're talking about, Jill, you just saw him. And even if you couldn't understand what he was saying, it looked effective. What, for people that have only read about him or seen him in video, what, what is the lasting legacy of Michael White? Well, I think one thing that was really fantastic about Michael and unusual was that he was really good at reading things in other disciplines and translating them into therapeutic practice. I think that's pretty unusual. And he, a lot of the ideas he developed had to do with reading that he was doing in philosophy or anthropology or something else. So I don't know anybody else who's, who was able to do that in that way. And the other thing about... He was, he was really, really smart. He's, he's one of the few people that I've ever met that, that any time I sat down with him, by 15 minutes into the conversation, I had this track going in my head that was saying, I'm never going to be that smart. I'm pretty smart. I've made good grades. I catch on quick, but I'm never going to be that smart. He was really collaborative. The first time that we sponsored him, he and Cheryl stayed on an extra day. And first thing in the morning, we started saying, well, you know, we could, we could take you to the Art Institute. We can walk around some neighborhoods. We could spend some time on the lake. And Michael said, we want to see your work. They wanted to come back and see any videos we had. Any, they wanted to see our work. And uh, a few years later, Michael had been at our place doing uh, some live consultation interviews. And he called me up and said, you know, I was watching the video of this interview and you were on the reflecting team and you asked some questions I wouldn't have thought of. Like, I think that you've struck some new ground. Can I just ask you about that? So he was like really interested in contributions from other people and how other people did things and, and how and community. So I think that that's also part of his legacy. As hypnotherapists, we began to 
feel really strange about the fact that we were doing all the talking in therapy and we weren't doing much listening. And we were coming up with elaborate metaphors and well-constructed trances, but people were sitting there with their eyes closed and listening to us. And that, that just began to feel, it was a big burden to have all that responsibility. And it was not honoring the knowledge or the skills or the agency of the people we were working with. Even before we met Michael, we were beginning to, to think about where the power is in therapy and how, how to make it more collaborative. And then Michael just showed us the way of doing that. He was, I, I think when people first hear about narrative therapy, they think it's about storytelling and it's really about story listening, I think. And Michael was, was just an excellent listener. And he would listen for very small details and bring forth details with his curiosity about people's stories and about where those stories might lead next in ways that really did honor people as knowledgeable about their own lives and as the authors of the stories of their own lives. And he just modeled that time and time again. It's interesting thinking of how models age. And I've been in the field now for 21 years and I'm trained marriage and family therapists and, and social workers. And when students look at that strategic, it doesn't age well in some cases for these exact same reasons, the paradoxical nature, the duplicitous, uh, sometimes underhanded means of creating change where narrative really, because it is a conversation with listening and honoring, it really has aged wonderfully. And, and it's also pr probably a reason is, is popular still to this day because of those enduring qualities. Now, these were big shoes to fill. Michael, like I said, left us way too soon. Talk about how then it really became the focus of your all's career. I mean, Friedman and Combs go together like peanut butter and jelly. Talk about where you obviously honored the work of Michael, but also moved in your own direction and put your own stamp. If I'm listening to this Friedman and Combs style of, of narrative therapy, how has it grown in the last 30 years? You know, um, a story that I've told a number of times is that, and I've told it a number of times because it's really striking, I, I feel like uh, Jean and I have come up with a new idea or a new practice, and we're excited about it. And then I read something that Michael wrote many years before, and that I've read before, and there it is. He's always stealing our ideas like that. Yeah. He, he stole them five years before we had them. Yeah. And so his writing particularly was really, really packed. And so I think there are these little things that maybe we didn't pay so much attention to, but that, that have grown. I think the main contribution that we've made is unpacking things that were already in the work of Michael and David, finding examples, making things more specific. I don't feel like we've developed a lot of new practices. I do think we've made things more accessible, brought them to more people. I think we're really good at developing exercises and ways that people can practice and learn things. Yeah, I, I just want to emphasize that. I, I, I think the skill we've got that we're sometimes puzzled that it seems to be 
sort of special to, to us as a team. We see stuff in both in Michael's writing and in his work that other people don't seem to see. And as a team, together, we seem to be pretty good at making that clear in a way that maybe Michael and David weren't because they're more intellectual than we are in a certain way, or more scholarly in their writing. When we first turned in our manuscript to our, our narrative therapy book, Susan Barrows, our editor, said back to us that we were clear. We were very clear. And I think I think as a team between the two of us, by the time we've written something together and it gets out of both our filters, we, we are good explicators of other people's work. And I think that David Epstein has continued building different practices and thinking about uh, different ways. Michael White, when you read that stuff, it is so, you said it best, packed full of stuff. And uh, why I like your all's writing in that book, uh, your original uh, book of, you know, you have three, it stands the test of time because of the way it is broken down in, in language that is very accessible. I think is why also clinicians enjoy, enjoy the model because it is collaborative, it is postmodern, and it honors the voice of the client in the story. And you don't have to have a lot of expertise to feel like you can start working with narrative techniques. So of all those techniques, which ones do you enjoy the most? You know, we throw out word association like externalizations and letter writing and reflecting teams. I mean, I'm curious about your thoughts on all of them, but uh, what do you enjoy the most uh, about narrative practice? I'm going to want to back up a step before we answer that question and just be picky about language. Uh, We think it's good not to orient to these things as techniques. And we think if, if, if we're thinking about technique, we're probably not operating out of a narrative worldview. What we think is most important is that sort of, call it post-structuralist, if you will, worldview and, and the narrative metaphor, approaching people's lives as stories, that there's lots of unstoried stuff there and helping make richer, thicker, more richly described lives and approaching problems in their full context and not wanting to know about the complexity from the person's point of view, not from a professionalized point of view. And we think when we start treating it as techniques, it gets pulled out into little things that interferes with the kind of relationship we want to have with people. I don't know what Jill would want to add or subtract to that. Well, I was just thinking in a totally different way. I think I I was... First, I was thinking about different practices and what I'm pulled to. But then I began thinking about, like, what's really made a huge difference for me and for the people I work with. And I was thinking about the idea of relational identity and the ideas about identity and narrative practice, that we're always becoming other and we're doing that in relation to other people. And I just think that makes a difference in thinking about working with families. It makes a difference in thinking about making documents with people because they can share them with other people and have other people be involved. Just sort of a switch from thinking about problems being inside of people to thinking about 
people having relationships with problems and building other relationships or teams that help support them in changing their relationship with the problem. And there can be a lot of practices involved in that, but it's a different way of thinking about problems and a different way of thinking about identity and community that I think have made the most significant differences. In, for the people I work with and for the way I think as well. It's more of a, uh, than a series of techniques. Uh, it is a way of working and an ideology and also uh, prioritizing, much like we started our interview, you know, we think of the, the dominant story, the dominant discourse. It, it, it gives voice to the non-dominant and it takes this, uh, you know, more macro look at even though what we do is a very micro practice of working with individuals, couples, and families, it's certainly their story is impacted by all these other factors. So I just love hearing you all talk. So I mean, uh, your, your stories of your partnership and then working together and then the uh, special part about uh, reflecting teams and being so important to clients to get feedback from not just a one clinician, but a team of people. Why do you think that is so important to the model and to the approach? Tenio is AAMFT's online education platform and provides clinical training with a focus on systems and relational therapies. Tenio courses are all online and can be accessed anywhere in the world. Courses can be started, paused, and completed at any time to accommodate busy mental health professionals' schedules. Tenio courses are approved by many state regulatory boards to provide continuing education credit hours and cover such diverse topics as marketing your practice, elder care, working with LGBTQ clients, and ethics. Explore the course catalog at www.aamft.org forward slash learning and use code TENEO10 for 10% off your purchase. I can say a few different things. One is when we first started using reflecting teams, we were doing a live supervision we would have the same family maybe be seen by one of our participants three times in a row with a team, and then we would switch, and a different participant would would be the therapist, and there'd be a team. And we had the experience a number of times, years later, of those families, different families calling and saying, you know, we're at a hard place. We're thinking maybe it'd be a good time to come for therapy. And I would say, well, wait a minute, let me, let me get my schedule and I'll tell you what I've got available. And there would be this pause. And then whoever had called would say, actually, Jill, we want to see the team. <laughs> they didn't want to see me, they wanted to see the team. I, I think people have this sense of a whole team being with them and that that makes a huge difference. The other thing is when we switched, you know, so when we first started doing family therapy, the therapist would come behind the mirror and have a conversation with everyone. And usually the message that went back was the message that the senior therapist or supervisor, it was usually what they said would go back into the room. There was this assumption from everyone that their idea was the best idea. And when we started doing reflecting teams, that's not what happened. Oftentimes, after the team would speak, we would then ask the family members what stood out for them. And 
repeatedly what stood out would be something that maybe one of the least experienced therapists on the team had said. That would have never, they would have never heard that in the old way that the team operated. So that was very humbling and also important. And we began to see how it, there wasn't one right answer or response or story, but these multiple threads of experience would have different meaning to different people. And so I think that that influenced our teaching and also our practice. And I think another thing that has happened as we move more into outsider witness groups and away from the kind of classical Tom Anderson kind of uh, reflecting teams, the, the, the focus there is not on what the any of the therapists in the room think would be an interpretation of what's going on or, or a good idea about a solution. It's about what they've heard in the interview that some member of the family has said that has moved them in some way, that has transported them, that has lit up something new for the therapist who was listening behind the mirror. So what we're doing with the outsider witness group is witnessing what is there that is already inspiring in what the family or the individual is doing and witnessing that and offering witness to that. And I think that's just a very different orientation. And people say that it's really significant to hear that therapists resonate with their experience and sometimes therapists talk, ask if they can um, tell someone else that they're working with about what somebody in the family said, or they say it's going to impact their practice. And that's also really moving for people, that here they came with a problem, but something they said is helpful to somebody else. I think of how powerful that experience is, and hopefully all of our listeners, even if you don't completely align with a narrative framework, you've had the chance in your training to be part of a live supervision group and a reflecting team because how powerful it is you know as therapists we think you know we're therapist centric we think we know what the pivotal moments are but this pivotal moments literature that says really know the client knows best and many times these observations that the clients hear and uh, from the team are so powerful and your story really resonates with me and hopefully will our listeners too that you don't need a lot of years you don't need to be an expert clinician to be able to meaningfully impact somebody's story. I'd also be remiss, I, I did not mention this in the front, and if, I won't take it for granted that everybody knows that Jill and Jean are a husband and wife team, so we're mentioning that too, and I have interviewed several husband and wife teams in the four seasons of the podcast, but I don't think anyone would quite with the longevity of the two of you. I want to know how you do such a wonderful partnership, the personal and the professional, and how you balance that, if you don't mind. <laughs> Well, the first thing I think Gene and I were both laughing at, that just means we're old, I think. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, We've lived a long time. Right. But I'm thinking about, like, when we wrote our first book, we were actually d agreed on sort of a structure. And then we would have this particular part, and we each wrote it. And then we would exchange what we wrote, and we would fight about it. That didn't work. So then we would, one of us would write a piece and we'd give it to the other person. 
and they'd change it in a way that we would fight about it. That didn't work. And then we decided to write these different, you know, sections and then look at each other's sections. And we discovered that even though we were writing different sections, that half of what we wrote overlapped with what the other person wrote. So we would have to like wildly edit until we finally finally found a way to write together and that both of us feel like what we write is better than what either of us could write alone. So it, t- it took a long time and I think it had to do with respect of what the other person brings and also that we're really different. We, we bring different skills and I think we fu- it took us a while, it wasn't easy, but we found a way to put them together that, that made what we do better than what either of us would do. What I would add to that is just is, is that we really love each other, and that's been there all the way through, whatever that means. It, it's made us hang in through rough times. And I think we're very different people, and I think we really have learned to appreciate each other's strength. Jill, almost all of our examples from literature, I mean, I mean from, from, from our work, are Jill's because she remembers the story of what happens in a therapy session with much more detail than I will ever remember. And she is the, she would like to be a novelist at some point in her life at times she's toyed with. And, and she, she has those skills. I'm much more intellectual and I read deeper in philosophy and history and theory than she does. And, and I bring that to what we do. And we found a way to mesh that that we both know is is stronger than either of us would be by ourselves. That's beautiful. And I think you will have one child, right, together? That's right. Uh, A daughter? Yes. Yeah. What does she think? Because when (laughs) I talk to model developers and influential people in the field, it's interesting. Like their family, you know, they're just mom and dad or they're they're just brother or sister. They don't really understand the significance and their impact in the field. So I'm curious what your daughter thinks of uh, your collective body of work and what you've done with your career. I think we wrote one piece that was about our experience adopting her. And I, I think she did finally read that at one point. She didn't have a whole lot to say about it. She said it made her cry. Ah, yeah. yeah. See, there's the difference in me and Jill. Jill remembers that and I don't. When she was very young, we took her with us to lots and lots of conferences. She had a really fantastic relationship with Michael White. She introduced uh, plenaries that he did twice when she was like nine, you know, and 10 or something like that. And she's met a lot of people. So I think she has a sense of the community, but not really of our work. Yeah, she's not going to be a therapist. She's She's an artist. She's a maker. But among her friends, she is the person that everybody brings their troubles to. And I, I think she has sort of incorporated some skills at, at listening just, just by hanging out with us over the years. Yeah, sometimes she'll ask narrative questions, but she won't know that that's where they came from. Yeah, you'd have to be a good listener to be the child of the two of you all. Is that, as we said, so, so important to embracing this framework. Why do you think, you know, 40 years after Michael White introduced this revolutionary way of working with individuals, couples, and families, why do you think it is still so vital and so very popular so many years later? I think there are a couple of reasons. One is like, it's very helpful to people. Also, I think 
that more and more people are thinking about the impact of inequities in our various cultures, the difficulties of living up to dominant ways of doing things, and more and more people are speaking out about other ways of doing things. So I think it's a very good fit for one of the movements, really, that's, that's happening in the world. So instead of thinking about problems as being inside of people, really thinking about the larger constraints and discourses and context and how to relate to those, I think is something that people are taking up outside of therapy and is a really good fit for being happening in therapy. I found it really surprising over the years, particularly younger people now, use a lot of the language that we've been using for a long time in narrative therapy, but they're not getting it from there. You know, it's, it's become a more way of, of thinking about things in other contexts. I, I think for the people that it appeals to, who tend to be more contextually, politically interested and concerned people, that, that it offers a way of, of bringing the politics into the therapy in a non-invasive, non-intrusive, non-dictatorial way, but still getting them on the table. And I also think that, that it's, it's fun. It's, it's not applying a technique over and over. I would be bored to death to be a CBT therapist. I, I just, I, it's just, it's too programmed for me. And with narrative therapy, my main job is to listen to people's stories of what's going on in their lives and to help them make those stories richer. And that's just both less burdensome to me as having to solve it and more interesting because I get to hear details that I would have never predicted about people's lives. So I, I think it's a, it's a very non-burnout kind of theory. I couldn't say it any better than that. And if our listeners often like to continue the dialogue and they want to find out more about Jill Friedman and Gene Combs, and they maybe want to know about the Evanston Family Therapy Center, a place where in Evanston, I, where I spent uh, my formative years, 10 years of my life, and uh, just a couple of uh, streets away from you guys. So tell us where they can or how they can contact you. And if I want to either get some training from Jill and Jean, or I want to read some Jill and Jean, this uh, unified voice, this way you will have meshed together so nicely. Where, where do I go? You go to narrativetherapychicago.com. That's our website. All one word, narrativetherapychicago.com. And you can find links to everything else about us there. Or you can email us at EFTC. Evanston Family Therapy Center, EFTC, at narrativetherapychicago.com. You know, this is a tough question, but I have to ask since you have this personal and professional partnership. If I could only read uh, one thing of Friedman and Combs, what should I read? I think our, if you could read a whole book, I'd go for Narrative Therapy, The Social Construction of Preferred Realities. What do you think, Gene? Yes. If you could only read one thing and you're willing to put in a whole book. And the thing that you are personally most proud of, it might not be the most read, but the thing that is either because of the content or the experience, you know, birthing it, writing it was so impactful. What is the thing you are most proud of? I think Jill's probably most proud of her absent but implicit paper 
that's in the Dulles Center. The International uh, Journal of Narrative Therapy and Community Work. And I probably personally put the most work into the article on white privilege and what should a family therapist do with it that's in JMFT. I thought you were going to talk about the neoliberal paper. But yeah, white privilege, what's a family therapist to do, I think is a really fantastic contribution that Jean made. Um, It it is. It holds the test of time, and it's great. I actually use that with my students. So I'm glad you mentioned that one. I picked that up and stimulate a lot of thought and a lot of dialogue. Much like we've done this hour, I can't thank you enough. I think our listeners, every time I talk to innovators and model developers, you can tell they they don't sound old uh, because they are passionate about what they do. And they're still doing the work, not because they have to, it's because they love it and they want to. What Gene said resonated with me. It's because it is not a series of techniques. It is a, a way of being and in conversation and helping someone restore their life that is uh, probably renewing every time you do it. And when you help someone restore their life and change things, whether it be an individual, a couple, or family, it is probably the ultimate feeling and satisfaction which makes you want to do more of it. So I can't thank you enough for sharing your passion. And I know our listeners will really enjoy this. Gene and Jill, thank you. That was so much fun. When you listen to them talk, you can see how their world was expanded when they met Michael White and they could never go back to doing therapy or working with systems the same way. So I thank them so much of their time. And again, whenever we can interview a husband and wife team that are personally and professionally connected, it's so very special, especially on a show about relationships and relational therapist. They spoke so reverently of of Michael White. Michael White passed away way too soon in 2008. I'd like to let everybody know, in addition to visiting Jill and Jean at narrativetherapychicago.com, you can check out the dulwichcenter.com. That's D-U-L-W-I-C-H-C-E-N-T-R-E.com. The Dulwich Center Independent Centered in Adelaide, Australia, is the birthplace of narrative therapy. And that's where Michael White and David Edston had some of their greatest ideas and collaborations starting back in 1983. And they have a Michael White archive. If you've only heard about him but never uh, seen him, there are his writings, photo archive and a video archive. They have a clip up there shortly before his passing of Sal Mnuchin and Michael White going back and forth for about five minutes that's worth looking at. You'll see his work and the evolution of his thinking on there. Speaking of pioneers, we have four seasons of the AMFT podcast where we like to go between hot and emerging topics in the field of systemic therapy that you need to know about while also showcasing our innovators like Jill and Jean. We've interviewed a lot of people in the last four years, and some, like Michael White, are no longer with us. Like We were lucky to have in the last interview with David Snarch, Connie Ahrens, people like Karen Wampler. The importance of a show like this is to capture passionate, inspiring, systemic thinkers and innovators. Check out the archive wherever you find your favorite podcast. I like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please leave us a star rating and a review.
review. Helps us rise to the ranks of the Mental Health Podcast. I love hearing from you, the listener. Visit me at elikaram.com, E-L-I-K-A-R-A-M.com. Email me, Eli at NorthStarCounselingCenter.com. Follow the conversation on Twitter. The AMFT is at the AAMFT. I'm at Dr. Eli Live. Until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay systemic.